0: Good Thursday evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. I know it might be early evening as I'm on the air, but um, before we know it, tomorrow is Friday, and uh, I know all of you are looking forward to it being uh, Friday come tomorrow. I'm uh, podcasting uh, live with uh, steady rain outside. Of course, I'm inside my home, but it's been raining pretty steady all day where I'm at, and... um, While the rain is nice, we certainly want to be safe and all that, Uh, nothing worse than getting uh, stuck out on the road and um, not being able to turn around. Of course, as an old saying goes, uh, don't drown, turn around. But nonetheless, uh, it's good to be inside, and uh, I look forward to sharing with you all another uh, segment of Founding Martyr by Christian D. Spigna, The Life and Death of Dr. Joseph Warren, The American Revolution's Lost Hero. Well, tonight's uh, podcast segment is going to be focusing on the years most notably in between about 1765 and just around the start of 1768. And 1765 is um, important for a variety of reasons, especially even into the start of 1766, But we're going to get into those reasons here right now. So our uh, first lead-off bonus question for tonight's podcast is the following. By 1765, was the port of Boston in good shape economically? The answer is no. On the flip side, though, prior to uh, the Seven Years' War, or rather I should say as the Seven Years' War or that infamous French and Indian War was going on, Boston's economy was still going strong, although it was on the brink of, um, of borderline in terms of whether or not it was going to remain stable or unstable. Now, during the Seven Years' War, uh, your manufacturers um, and other um, essential lines of employment uh, that are geared more for uh, the military are going to be in good shape But by the time uh, the war ends, Boston has lost its premier status as the leading um, port city. And it turns out that cities uh, south of Boston, most notably New York and Philadelphia, are going to emerge as the new powers. How so? Well, they will emerge as the new powers in size, volume, and economic importance. In other words, more goods are going to be flowing in and out of Philadelphia and New York City than, say, Boston. Now, the irony with Massachusetts is that uh, Boston has been competing for a long time with other port cities, um, most notably uh, north of them, like uh, Gloucester and Marblehead and uh, Salem. And history has shown that there have been times where Salem and Marblehead have actually had better um, records of uh, goods coming in and out than say Boston. So if any other city can emerge as a strong port city slash town in Massachusetts, it will either be uh, Salem or Marblehead. But as for uh, more prominent cities, uh, Philadelphia and New York City are those two that have uh, really taken over. And after the Seven Years War ends, The line of credit, or rather I should say credit lines in general that were once provided to colonial merchants, would never be the same, which led to greater economic fear and uncertainty, especially in Boston. So in other words, people who could rely on banks to supply them with credit, now have this realization that, hey, we've become forgotten. Perhaps our line of work is no longer significant to the crown. And it's almost like my position is being eliminated. So here's the next question. Did bankruptcy itself impact people from all ranks of Boston society? The answer is yes. But. If there is one person whose actions ruined so many people's lines of credit, who was that individual? His name was Nathaniel Wheelwright. Well, who is Nathaniel Wheelwright? He is a well-known Boston merchant who had received large amounts of credit during the Seven Years' War. He received up to 1,150 pounds worth of credit. Now, of course, I don't know what that would be worth in today's uh, money, but it would be a hefty amount, uh, to say the least. But uh, Mr. Wheelwright helped extend the lines of credit to many Bostonians. Well, that's nice. Uh, so how can he be the, prob- the source of the problem if he's extending uh, lines of credit to many in Boston who are worthy of receiving um, credit extensions? Well, it turns out in 1764, the year after the French and Indian War ends, uh, Mr. Wheelwright is caught smuggling wine You know, that seems like a petty offense, but to make matters worse, he falls for a con artist's bait regarding a buried treasure. Now, how does that tie into this um, credit problem? Well, come January of 1765, Nathaniel Wheelwright's financial troubles become exposed to the public at large, and it turns out that he owed more money than he was worth. So the bottom line is he may have, been, he may have um, received up to 1,150 pounds worth of credit, but he owed far more money than he received. But somehow he found a way to, um, what do you call it, um, bend the rules to where he could you know, profit off of those who were lending him the money while cheating everyone else, everyone else out below him. I think we've heard that story a lot of times, especially in this modern day age where Ponzi schemes take place, most notably uh, from 12 years ago when Bernie Madoff had finally been caught after X number of years um, defrauding investors. Well, I hate to say it, that even this kind of activity was going on um, in 18th century uh, times. So, as for Mr. Wheelwright, His financial troubles did become exposed to where he owed more money than he was worth. His debts were so bad that they caused other people to struggle financially as well. So, think about it. Low class, lower class, um, from the middling sort to even, say, an upper middle class person. Now everybody's feeling the effects of Mr. Wheelwright's um, issues that he has uh, brought not only upon himself, but to everyone else who has had to suffer at his expense. So, was Dr. Warren, or should I say Dr. Joseph Warren, impacted by Nathaniel Wheelwright's actions? Yes. Many of his patients were unable to pay their necessary medical expenses. And remember, as a doctor, Dr. Warren has a ledger. Well, he has multiple ledgers, but... His ledgers are his books that he writes down for transactions and um, record-keeping of who owes him a payment. You know, many people had ledgers, tavern keepers uh, to silversmiths, uh, blacksmiths. That was just part of their daily um, business procedure. Without a ledger, how are they going to keep track of who owes who what? Okay, we get now to March 1765. You know, there's a I've mentioned quite a bit not only uh, in this uh, podcast series but in other uh, pod, from another podcast, uh, most notably uh, signing their lives away about the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence. But in March of 1765, Parliament passes that infamous Stamp Act. We all know about the Stamp Act, remember that rally cry, taxation without representation? Why did Parliament pass the Stamp Act? Well, as I mentioned from a previous podcast, after the French and Indian War ends, the British uh, Treasury is drained so bad to where there's about 120 um, They're up to uh, debt in about 120 um, million pounds. Uh, I'm not sure what that is in today's dollars, but it's a pretty bad sum of money. So obviously, uh, Parliament feels that uh, the colonists aren't paying their fair share of taxes already as it was before and during the war. Why not raise their, their taxes? course, there's going to be a problem with that, and we're going to find out here in a moment. But Parliament passes that infamous Stamp Act. It raises money to relieve existing debts, most notably from that French and Indian War. Parliament is also passed that Stamp Act. Um, This isn't a primary reason. It's more of a secondary reason, but it's a unique one. Along with the passage of the Stamp Act, Parliament is also maintaining the presence of British troops on the colonies' western frontiers. okay, Western frontiers in the case for Virginia, Ohio, what we now know as present-day West Virginia, Indiana, Illinois. Front, when I think of western frontier, I also think of Kentucky and Tennessee. So think about this. If, in order to preserve the western frontier, you're going to need to have a military force there for a variety of reasons. But it turns out that most people who lived in cities had felt the greatest impact behind the Stamp Act legislation. Well think about it. Cities tend to uh, cater to a large crowd of people and if you live in a city more often than not you could be one of a handful of people competing for for one particular job. You could also be um, living in a bad part of town to where Um, You may not have the best uh, access to good air, or even let alone good health care. I think we face a lot of those questions even in today's modern world. But what tangible items were most prone to being taxed under this infamous Stamp Act? The answers ranged from playing cards, dice, to all printed papers, which included legal documents, almanacs, mortgages, land deeds, newspapers. I should even point out that the Stamp Act also applied to marriage licenses. So think about it. If you're going to be getting married in 1765, this is going to be a big problem. You're going to actually have to pay a tax on your license. But here is um, a bigger uh, problem right here. The Stamp Act, facing the Stamp Act, this piece of legislation was not a duty on shipping. You know how there are taxes with shipping an item from point A to point B. But this was a direct tax on items bought from the colonies. But here's the thing. All these materials are coming to the colonies from England. So it actually should be a tax... Imposed by the british uh, P- British legislature or, or Parliament on their own grounds to tax their people, why should we be taxed because we don't we don't we didn't send people over to Parliament to vote on this, so therefore we're not able to have a say. We're being deprived of us of having a proper say. So the Stamp Act, yes, it's not a duty on shipping a direct tax on items bought from the colonies or from the all everyone living in the colonies, but it was Parliament at its worst, imposing taxes without approval from all 13 colonial legislatures. Yes, it's one thing to say that this is a violation of taxation without representation, which it is, but if none of the 13 colonial legislatures approved of this measure in advance, then it's what I call... Um, it's null and void. In other words, if it's null and void, it has no relevancy. It's irrelevant. Of course, later on down the road, we could say it's unconstitutional. In October of 1765, a handful of members, I should say roughly about 27 of them, from nine colonies convene in New York. New York City, that is by coming together and denouncing Parliament's right to tax without fair or proper representation. Nine colonies, now nine out of 13, just remember this folks, if in order to have any proper ratification out of say 13 colonies, you would need to have nine. Of course, you know, 27 members doesn't seem like a lot, If you do the math, that could be uh, three members from each of the nine uh, colonies that came. But 27 members is a good start. Here's another bonus question right here. Did the elite, middle, and lower classes throughout Boston society come together in defiance of the Stamp Act? Yes. Some actions, though, were taken um, by... Protesters or let alone mob crowds that resorted to burning the homes of prominent loyalist families as well as tax custom collectors. So it's bad enough to voice your opposition verbally, but there was a group in uh, Boston society that went as far as uh, destroying not just the outside of one's home, who was not just so much a staunch loyalist, but a tax collector. As a matter of fact, a a couple of tax collectors had their homes destroyed to where they resigned immediately and went back home to England in fear for not only their lives, but that of their families. And the protesters did go as far as to destroying furniture, to breaking windows, and destroying other people's other pieces of property belonging to none other than loyalist members from within the community. You know, in in today's unstable world, we see a lot of, not to get off track here, and um, of course, I'm going to be careful with what I say, but there's a lot of disturbing stuff going on um, in many cities in today's time with so many issues that, you know, maybe could have been modified better at one point years ago, but... The big difference between what happened in Boston versus what's going on today is that, you know, for starters, we only had 13 colonies, and a lot of this unrest that was going on in 1765 was confined to one region in colonial America, being none other than in New England. You know, the world has changed so much since 1765. I mean, what, 355 years I think it's fair to say in 1765, maybe our world population was, uh, or rather, population of colonial America was about one or two million, or, or between two to three million at best. I don't know what the exact population of the United States is in today's time, but it's, um, it's far more bigger than it was in 1765. But the bottom line is, is that the looting and the vandalism that we see now, it's frightening. Sure, it could have been frightening to loyalist families who lost their homes or or even their businesses during um, the um, time leading up to separation from England. But we must remember, too, that um, while violence can be inevitable, there are different degrees of inevitability. But what we're seeing now in today's world is easier access to not only just vent your frustration but to engage in uncivilized behavior to where um, multiple wrongs can be committed at any one time, and the ability to go about correcting it becomes even harder. So, in other words, to put it in a nutshell, whatever was going on in 1765 in New England was confined to one region. And what? And by the time um, an incident such as uh, destroying um, a prominent loyalist's home in in Boston, once that news reached, uh, say Williamsburg, Virginia, it was probably at least two to three weeks old at best. So, in other words, once you receive when you received the news and learned about an incident right away, it had, it had already happened. But was it breaking news for someone else living in a middle or southern colony who didn't know beforehand? Absolutely. That's the beauty of uh, how new of the difference in traveling news was between 1765, now, and today's time. But, anyways, uh, back to our focal point. Here's another bonus question. Uh, what group was responsible for orchestrating protests involving the Stamp Act? It was a group known as the Loyal Nine, whom was led by a gentleman named Ebenezer McIntosh. However, this group would become just one of many patriot organizations to rise up against British authority. So, the, not to get too far ahead into the game, but this will be something that... Um, that British troops are going to have to take into consideration three years from now come 1768 when General Thomas Gage comes over to Boston and he brings about 2,000 soldiers at best, which you think is a lot. It turns out that Thomas Gage will be in for a rude awakening and realize that, hey, the people of Boston really aren't dumb people. They're smart, they're resilient, and they know that That they're not going to put up with crap that they know is irrelevant. So in other words, yes, you can bring 2,000 troops or more over, but we're ready for a fight. So in other words, General Gage and his troops are going to fail to realize that it's not just one man or one organization that is bearing hostility towards British presence. Not just British presence, but British... um, policy treatment, not only towards Massachusetts, but perhaps to the other colonies. What they're going to realize is that um, they're just one of a plethora of organizations who are going to take up arms against the Crown, the Parliament, and the King's Army. So, uh, when would the Stamp Act itself go into effect? That's another important bonus question. You know, I was always led to believe that when Parliament passed the Stamp Act, that the law, the the legislation itself just went into effect right away. Actually, it did not. While Parliament um, passed it in um, March of um, 1765, it didn't go into effect until November of 1765. So that's eight months. You think about it, eight months of preparation on the part of uh, the people of Massachusetts to muster their opposition, to, to get organizations established to say, hey, we're going to put up a fight. We're going to let it be known that we don't want to be taxed without our consent. We don't, you know, we're going to let it be known that these taxes are, on, are uncalled for on everything that's being brought into America when it wasn't even made in America. It was made in England. So, did Dr. Warren's level with politics increase in the aftermath of the Stamp Act passage? Yes. Starting around 1765, about one month before the legislation itself would go into effect, Dr. Warren himself published an article in the Boston Gazette under a pseudonym with the initials of B.W. That's B as in Bravo, W as in Whiskey. Uh, for any of you who aren't sure what a pseudonym means, it it's basically a pen name, or in this case, uh, what do you call it, a, a, fict- a fictitious name, um, like going undercover, incognito. In other words, had had Dr. Warren published this article and listed his actual name, that could have posed a problem to those in the community who went to him. um, But given that he was a doctor and remember folks, he catered, he also catered, he catered to people from all walks of life, but he most notably had a fair, not a fair, but he had a good clientele of loyalist families um, coming to um, see, seek his services, most notably the Hutchinsons, um, that's just one example of a, a prominent uh, Loyalist family. So if he wrote his actual name on the, artic- on the um, article, he could have been the target of a death threat. He could have been the target of, um, of direct violence himself. So he publishes this article and explains the dangers behind the Stamp Act, along with listing those who would benefit from the revenue it produced. He emphasized in the article that it was a direct violation to tax a man without his proper consent. Okay, that leads right up there to taxation without representation. Did Warren's article violate or advocate violence? It did not. He was looking for solutions that could be achieved without resorting to violence. Now, in 1766, colonists channel their anger and opposition towards the prime minister of England and his administration, being none other than George Grenville. Well, I think they are doing um, the right course of action. The irony to it is that they're not taking any of this out on the king. The king's on the throne, but... At the same time, um, you also have to have a prime minister. You've got to have somebody who's in charge. The king's not in charge of um, telling um, parliament to make these laws. But on the other hand, the king will do whatever he feels is necessary to support parliament. Now, in early 1766, George III does something that will actually make the colonists, most notably those in Massachusetts, very happy. He dismisses Prime Minister George Grenville. Who does he replace George Grenville with? He appoints a a person, and unfortunately this person's name was not mentioned in Christian de Spigno's book, but what I do know is that the Earl of Rockingham became the new Prime Minister now, I find Rock, uh, Earl of Rockingham to be interesting um, in terms of the Rockingham part. I say this because uh, where I attended college in the Shenandoah Valley was uh, Bridgewater College, and that, was, uh, lo- and that is located in Rockingham County. Well, it turns out that uh, there is a place in England known as Rockingham. And if you go to North Carolina, there is uh, Rockingham, North Carolina, and of course, my wife is originally from North Carolina, and there used to be a speedway where they did uh, races for some period of time, um, known as the Rockingham Raceway. So uh, remember folks, um, many of our 13 colonies well, I would say many of them, all of them, um, have being settled all of them have something uh, in terms of towns or cities connected to England. That I find is always unique because I'm always amazed when I look at the map of, say, Virginia or elsewhere and I see a place that, um, say, for example, like Suffolk or Norfolk or uh, Sussex, Virginia, I already know that there are places in England with those names. And uh, I've also been told, for example, that um, in Virginia, in the eastern part of the uh, state, most notably in Tidewater and the Northern Neck, that uh, those areas were named after English towns and cities. If you go further west past the Fall Line, yes, you can stumble upon some places that um, whose whose uh, towns and cities are named after um, places in England. But most notably, in the western part of Virginia, towns and uh, cities are named after uh, famous people, including war heroes. But anyways, um, back to the focal point here. Uh, Was the Earl of Rockingham in opposition to the Stamp Act? Yes. He went as far as convincing King George III in Parliament to repeal the measure which was officially done on March 18, 1766. And why did the Earl of Rockingham do this? I mean, other than the fact that he was opposed to it. Well, it turned out that this fellow, being the Earl of Rockingham, was well-connected to many London merchants who were impacted by the colonial boycotts. Now, here, finally, we've got someone who's using some common sense Someone who actually wants to um, sympathize with the colonists and realize that hey, look, you guys are being taxed without your consent, and I are and I see how this is also impacting uh, many of your all of the merchants in London because, you know, you all are dependent upon our goods, but in order to receive the goods fairly. Um, there has to be uh, better means of uh, consent between all parties involved. And if any of you all aren't sure what a boycott means, that means that you're in, not only in opposition to something, but it means that you are now, no longer wanting to buy a particular good or you just don't want to have anything to do with something until the matter itself gets resolved. Now, the Stamp Act repeal itself was a huge victory for Whig leadership. Joseph Warren saw liberty as one's right to self-govern, or rather the right to self-government. Were Whig leaders like Warren himself, along with Sam Adams, already fixed on the notion of separation from England long before many other colonists considered doing so? Yes the people of massachusetts see something that maybe the other that perhaps many of the other colonies especially the non new england colonies are already beginning to beginning to see the people of massachusetts are so fed up with how parliament has treated them they are so fed up with with legislation being passed that doesn't benefit the greater public as a whole they are fed up with the fact that so many of their men um, went to fight, not just in the French and Indian war, but the other wars involving England and not being fairly compensated. They don't like the fact that, um, okay, well, yes, Britain won this war, but the militiamen who fought, they didn't get anything out of it. So I think it's fair to say that, um, that the Whig leaders themselves are, in fact, more than just one step ahead of the game. Which Whig leader in Massachusetts would become essential to promoting rebellion? The answer isn't Dr. Joseph Warren, just yet, but a fellow named Samuel Adams, a.k.a. John Adams' cousin. Samuel Adams, just like his cousin John Adams, and Dr. Warren himself, is a Harvard graduate. Samuel Adams came to prominence for his outspoken opposition to the Stamp Act as well as the Sugar Act. He became one of Dr. Warren's patients in 1768. Now, I can tell you this much right here. What was one major difference between Joseph Warren and Samuel Adams in the eyes of top leading British officials? Joseph Warren earned a certain level of respect due to being successful or rather being a successful physician. In other words, not just the title of physician, but his business was so successful that it not only catered to, it catered to numerous ranks of of Massachusetts society, but it's the fact that he had a reputable business that could cater to families who had um, loyalist ties to the crown and parliament. Samuel Adams, on the other hand, He tried very hard to be a successful businessman, but it just wasn't meant to be for him. So, Samuel Adams, given that he was not a successful businessman, he was a far better skilled leader when it came to speaking out against the crown in parliament. So in other words, I think his vocation would have been one at being a successful orator. An orator who could... um, Say, give lectures to audiences, and in today's time, be paid for it. a public speaker so um, here's another bonus question here: Where did Joseph Warren and other patriots gather to create their agenda towards opposing British policies? They all met right above a print shop. in an office or facility just above a print shop that was owned by Benjamin Eads and John Gill. And given that Dr. Warren was a physician, in a sense, he really almost had two professions. Besides being a physician, the second was being a member of a radical movement or organization, which led him to be able to network left and right um, to promote... Um, what do you call it? Opposition um, strategies uh, towards uh, British uh, treatment was the eighteenth. Was eighteenth century Massachusetts one with close kinship ties? The answer is yes. Regardless of social, educational, or religious affiliations, many Bay Colony natives shared a communal spirit. And Joseph Warren himself was part of this unique network of friends and associates. The Whig faction itself would benefit from networks like his. So, you know, here we are. We're still, um, how do I say say—we're Not so much we're still. We are already beginning to uh, see the um, deterioration. And we're already beginning to see some impacts. We've already seen the Stamp Act. We've seen the current the, the Currency Act, the Sugar Act, Quartering Act. We're seeing pieces of legislation be thrown at us left or, and right without direct consent. And we're already seeing how it's impacting those who cannot stand it no more. But at the same time, we also are realizing that... Um, while yes, there are people who who are um hostile to the Stamp Act, we've seen that the Stamp Act was repealed and and everyone all thirteen colonies can breathe some sigh of relief. But is it fair to say that once the Stamp Act is repealed that is it safe to say that the worst is behind us? No, it won't be. But but because of that, we're still going to see how um 13 colonies will will work together over time to finally come together as one. But I thank you all for listening tonight, given that um, this was an early evening podcast session. Uh, nonetheless, it was good to get back on the air with all of you. Uh, thank you for your continued support. I look forward to being back on the air with another uh, session of uh, Founding Martyr, The Life and Death of Dr. Joseph Warren the American Revolution's lost hero. I will say before we um, leave off the air tonight that uh, Dr. Warren's um, his um, political mobilization is really getting stronger and stronger. Yes, he may not be advocating violence, but he knows deep down inside that it's only a matter of time before, before uh, matters will get worse to where violence will become inevitable. You know, yes, it's not right to live under that adage of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But we must remember, too, that even in 18th century times, conflict, for one, was inevitable, but there, were a fair, there was a, a sector of society that actually resorted to that eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth adage. And it, more often than not, it was neighbor against neighbor, depending on where you lived. So The bottom line is it did exist. How much so, that's up for debate. And Of course, a lot would depend on where you lived, but the bottom line is, is that the people of Massachusetts are not going to be intimidated. They are going to put up a fight. If it means resorting to violence, um, then that should be the case. However, there are going to be some who will say, hey, Yes, I get you're unhappy. I get that you're, that you're in total opposition to being taxed without your consent, but is it okay to destroy everyone else's property at your expense? I think if there was one person in Massachusetts right now who, could, who would have asked that question, the same question I just said a second ago, it would have been none other than John Adams. Why do I say John Adams? Well, for one, John Adams is a lawyer, and two, from what I read in the book, um, Dan Abrams is John Adams Under Fire, about John Adams' role in the, in the Boston Massacre trials, while John Adams empathized with those who had been um, victimized by British um, presence in Boston, John Adams believed that, um, that when people's emotions get out of control, they allow themselves to do things that are so unbecoming that they lose all uh, all ability to reason. And for those of you who were with me back at that first podcast session, John Adams did make a remark. And it's very true about emotions and it should and it should apply even in today's unstable society. Emotions cannot override facts. Facts are stubborn um circumstances or facts are just stubborn, um, stubborn things in general. But no matter how passionate you feel and no matter how angry you are, whatever outcome uh, is produced in the aftermath, say, of a trial or, or of a, an ordeal itself, the emotions cannot override the facts. So for John Adams, um, does he um, sympathize with, um, with those who are angry? Yes. But do you think he would have agreed with um, the loyal nine um, taking part in uh, destroying the homes of prominent loyalist families or the, even those of tax collectors? Probably not. Because in Adams' eyes, violence on that scale is not the solution to the problem. But that's a whole other topic for a whole other time. But thank you for listening, and I look forward to being back on the air here soon. Take care.